Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Everybody, it's John Engel, the co-host of the Alien Minute podcast, returning to the Alien Minute feed to talk to you guys about a new podcast idea. Mitch Bryan and I have been talking about starting a new show, something that's not in the Movies by Minutes format, and this is one of the ideas we came up with. Uh, it's called The Quadfecta. You may recall, uh, previously on Alien Minute, we've talked about the Coppola Quadfecta, the four quote-unquote perfect movies that Coppola was able to put together in the 70s, and how difficult of an accomplishment that is for other filmmakers, even truly great filmmakers that we uh, would assume would have four films in a row. It's not that easy, though, it turns out. So the idea of the show is that we do episodes about different filmmakers and see if they have a streak of four films that cut the muster. So this, uh, we would call this one the pilot episode, I guess. It initially seemed like we were going to go forward with it, so some of the language in the show sounds pretty self-assured, like we're definitely going to have these shows and we're going to have them on a regular schedule, but we're not sure about that yet. So let this serve as a pilot episode. Listen to it. Give us some feedback over on the Alien Minute Facebook page or on Twitter. Let us know what you think, and we'll see. Maybe we'll go ahead and do the show, or maybe we have some other ideas about other shows. So sit back and enjoy, and thanks for listening. I'm going to make him an offer, Captain. Kill us if you got the chance. I can handle things. I'm smart. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Hello, and welcome to the Quadfecta, the podcast where we... What was it, examine? You didn't write it down? No, it was, I was talking. You're the one with paper in front of you. I would have to type to Welcome write to the Quadfecta the podcast where we examine the Herculean accomplishment of a director delivering four truly great films in a row. Something like that? Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Mitch Bryan. I'm John Engel. And welcome to our party game. It's kind of a party game. I think that the last thing we want this podcast to be is too highfalutin. So we're going to be constantly taking issue with the auteur theory. And yet at the same time, we're going to be looking at films through that lens because we're going to be looking at movies that are helmed by the same person uh, four times in a row. Yeah. Uh, and we'll see how long we can play this game. You know, I, I want to make sure people understand we will get highfalutin sometimes. I don't want you to think we're never going to be highfalutin. Occasionally we will. But that's part of the deal. Like we're going to be over, <laughs> we're going to overspeak probably our opinions sometimes and we're going to get a little... Uh, pedantic at times i mean all these things are going to happen we're that's just not going to we're not that's not our intention to get that way or to have that be the nature of the show um it, it's really a fun discussion that we've had many times between us as friends um it started as a drinking game of sorts it really just started as a drinking conversation over beers uh asking the question has anyone ever made a better four movies in a row than Francis Ford Coppola did in the 1970s with The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, and Apocalypse Now? So we want to keep the to the kind of feel of that 
just having a conversation over beers sort of idea, but with a lot of research and homework and, um, you know, real talk about cinema included in that. I think that we can spend a lot of time trying to determine what this sort of truly great right. category is for these movies. Yeah. Because we can point to box office. We can point to critical consensus. We can also point to the influence that the film has had in popular culture, because I think that's another way that we have to acknowledge the the resonance of a movie. Um, what are those things sure. that stick with us? What are those phrases that we've heard a million times? Uh, so that's part of it. I think part of it too, though, is if we do skew a little auteurist at times, there is something to be said for a filmmaker delivering four really great movies in a row that fit into the auteurist pattern of that particular filmmaker. Sure. Because I think sometimes movies come out and they're not necessarily loved at the time. And then when we look back on the careers of certain filmmakers and we we see that particular movie, it may be that it has really aged well and has become a more respected movie than maybe it was when it first came out. So it's all subjective, yeah. but it's hopefully going to be a fun way to argue about movies. Sure. And, and, you know, the idea is to, um, for the sake of the show and for the sake of the game, so to speak, is to actually come to a conclusion by the end of the episode as well, which is interesting because obviously it's all subjective. But in the in the like contained space of a podcast, it's going to be me and you and a, and, uh, a guest, uh, usually, discussing these films and whether or not they qualify for the quadfecta, as we're calling it, the four truly great films in a row. Because three in a row seems to be easier. But it's finding the four in a row that's the it's, trickier. It's always, there's something to that. I, I, I wonder if we'll find a pattern where a strange choice is made somewhere around the third or fourth movie. Sometimes it is the third movie that's the odd man out. Um, you'll get two really, uh, like, I, I guess you could say uh, David Lynch would be an example. We'll probably talk about him at some point where you get this incredible, like, micro-budget independent film, Labor of Love, Eraserhead. Then you get this brilliant studio made um but still art house picture the elephant man and then you go <laughs> to dune and uh and you know that that's a strange choice for him because boy i in my opinion david lynch would have a hell of a run if it wasn't for dune of course someone might argue that dune belongs in his quadfecta which would be an interesting conversation to have so all these things uh saying that is one way of saying too that this is will also be a democratic podcast uh we will have a pretty heavy social media presence and we will always be putting out to our listeners what they think about our conclusions and, and what conclusion they come up with themselves so i think you know we'll come up with a conclusion at the end of every episode that'll be the the cliffhanger at the end well not cliffhanger but uh the destination at the end of every episode is is did it or did it not make the quadfecta and then after that we'll go to the listeners for it and i think that'll be fun it'll be an interactive experience and everybody will get to air their opinion. And believe me, the many times I've had conversations about this subject, opinions start formulating immediately and gears start turning. Everybody starts to think, oh, who would I talk talk about? Or who, uh, who can I present as someone who obviously has the four in a row? And it's funny to watch people sometimes go, oh, they don't have a four in a row. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that stinker in the middle of it, you know, so we're not going to talk about Stanley Kubrick though, right? We're not going to talk about Stanley Kubrick because that's uh well, okay. I'll give my personal two reasons why. For one thing, it's obvious he has one actually like almost two <laughs> maybe. Um, but also Stanley Kubrick, maybe the most talked about filmmaker 
um, maybe he's been talked to. I don't want to say he's been talked to death. Nobody admires him more than you and I do. But there's no shortage of Kubrick discussion on podcasts. Yeah. I think that we, I think not only is it an easy conclusion that we could pick a couple of places where he's had four in a row, but maybe enough's enough. We could people could talk about Kubrick on other podcasts. Do you think it helps that um, he only made thirteen movies? And ha- that, you know, the first couple of them are, you kind of don't think about that much. And so then suddenly you get into, by the time you get to the killing, he's even made less than 13 movies at that point, right? He's been right. nine. So, um, so yes. it's easy to get your arms around him. And he's such an extraordinary filmmaker that um, maybe that's why people gravitate toward him. Sure. And, and um, as far as why he was able to accomplish so many consecutive great films is because he took his time. I mean, that's the the small amount of films he made had a lot to do with the fact that he really took his time and uh, put everything he had into making these movies very special. And he always wanted to make sure every movie was this special thing for himself and for the audience. He wanted to explore new territory every single time. And you can always tell as you're watching the film, you can always tell that a lot of care was put into it. And he was just, I don't know, he was so good at nailing it. Which is funny when you when you get deep into his um, method, so to speak, it's kind of amazing that he was so good at nailing. You would think that he would have had some more missteps than he did, just because uh, sometimes he was, I don't know, sort of winging it, like not exactly mm-hmm. sure what he wanted all the time. How I guess it was dogged pursuit of whatever that uh, um, thing that he wanted that he wasn't even sure of was why he was able to still get it because like forcing people into hundred take, you know, days and so on. But, um, yeah, I think that does have a lot to do with it. I think a lot of where we're going to find certain filmmakers failing to get the four in a row will be because they were working filmmakers. They were, they made a movie every year or two a year. And especially back in the old Hollywood factory days, when a lot of these guys we consider to be legendary directors were really just working directors that happened to make a lot of good films but also a lot of mediocre to sometimes even bad films in between. Yeah, and I think that's what's going to be fun, too, is when we get to those filmmakers that maybe aren't necessarily um, identified as auteurist filmmakers. Right. They're, 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 the, they're journeyman filmmakers yeah. who nevertheless managed to hit a streak for one reason or another and knock out four in a row that, were, that are great movies. And that's where we'll start chipping away at the auteur theory because we might find um, with some of those directors, that there might be another consistent factor in why those four movies say they were worked with the same screenwriter four times in a row, or or something to that effect, or the same producer four or times. The same or we might actor f- or actor, yeah. And it might be that all those things came together for them because they were working with the right people, not because they were the grand master over the proceedings, and uh, uh, in the way that you might say Coppola or Kubrick, and and were. how the filmmaker when they're on the ascent a hit after a hit after a hit, you have to think that maybe the stuff that gets offered to them is the stuff that's at the top of the heap. And therefore their momentum allows them to seize that property and command the kind of cast that you can only do with a big budget at the top of the heap. And so that could factor into it as well. So I hope that there's going to be some industrial um, examinations going on too. Sure. So that's part of why this game hopefully will be, you know, interesting and enlightening and, and will uh, hopefully point us towards some films that you haven't seen or you're going to point me to some films I haven't seen and that'll be part of it as well. Or, or the guest is going to point us towards or films we haven't seen or or considered to be perhaps a movie that we have seen but didn't consider to be um, worthy of like 
the canon or however you want to put it in our case the quadfecta if there is a three movies surrounding that film so it could be that we'll get introduced to something or reminded of something and realize wait that was better than i remembered or um, why don't people talk about this one more but then again the fact that people don't talk about a movie sometimes that might factor in yeah like oh it's good but it didn't have much of an impact it seemingly that's going to be an interesting part of the conversation you know when you look at those coppola films one of the things that is immediately apparent is how fast they were made. Yeah. This all took place in a period of about, you know, six years. And so the momentum that he had behind him, uh, and obviously one of them was a sequel. So there was, so they wanted him to make the Godfather two almost as soon as the Godfather one started making all that money. And so there's, that's a factor in, you know, in how he was able to sort of go boom, 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 the way that he did. Uh, So momentum the cast that he, the people he had around him, the the actors that um, Fred Ruse had brought together, that would appear from movie to movie, whether it's Harrison Ford showing up in the conversation in Apocalypse Now, um, or Robert Duvall showing up in in all four of those movies. Yeah, which is, is there anybody else? There's nobody else that showed up in all four, right? No, because John Cazal was not in, in Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now. Now. He would have been Frederick Forrest didn't do the Godfather movies. But yeah, I don't think Duvall so. I think made... you're right. Duval was the guy. All right, start talking. Uh, I was sent by a friend of Johnny Fontaine. His friend is my client. Would give his undying friendship to Mr. Walsk. If Mr. Walsk would grant us a small favor. Walsk is listening. Give Johnny the part in that new war film you're starting next week. <laughs> and, uh... What favor would uh, your friend uh, grant, Mr. Wolf? You're going to have some union problems. My client could make them disappear. Also, one of your top stars has just moved from uh, marijuana to heroin. Are you trying to muscle me? Absolutely now, not. Look to me, you smooth-talking son of a bitch. Let me lay it on the line for you and your boss, whoever he is. Johnny Fontaine will never get that movie. I don't care how many Dago, Guinea, what greaseball goombas come out of the woodwork. I'm German-Irish. Well, let me tell you something, my crowd Mick friend. I'm going to make so much trouble for you, you won't know what Mr. hit you. Mr. Walsh, I'm a lawyer. I have not threatened I know almost every big lawyer in New York. Who the hell are you? I have a special practice. I handle one client. Now, you have my number. I'll wait for your call. By the way, I admire your pictures very much. The casting in that could have been the thing that put that movie over the top. We don't know. Like, was The Godfather going to be truly great if some of the studio casting would have been accomplished some of the things the stories you always hear about robert redford and people like that that i mean would have would the script have overcome that would the cinematography have overcome the improper casting it's pitch perfect casting as we see it now um so fred roos and his influence on that would be a big part of Coppola accomplishing this and he, and he casts yeah he casts all four movies right yeah did 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 you hear on the one of the commentary tracks that Coppola said that he wanted initially Scorsese to direct Godfather Two, yeah and, and, and the studio Paramount wouldn't have it no and now was That's it because so he didn't really clarify that was it because they wanted Coppola so bad and to keep it consistent and or was it because Scorsese might have already what year are we talking about here 73 yeah I don't think he would have had, I mean, he just wouldn't have had the reputation of, right. uh, uh, you know, Alice doesn't live here anymore, came out in 74, right? So he hadn't even made a studio movie yet, really. Yeah. Mean Streets is, you know, more of a low budget 
um, personal film, so maybe they didn't trust him. And why wouldn't that De- have been De Niro? They, he had to fight for De Niro as well, right? A yeah, Coppola did. Well, didn't he always have to fight for everything? Yeah, it just like seems it. as though didn't have to fight. I guess Brando he didn't have thing. to fight that hard in Godfather Two once they said yes, because yes. once they said yes, he had more or less total creative control. The studio never saw any dailies, which is amazing to think that Paramount did not see any dailies from Godfather Two. Was Evan still? Evans was stu- still there. He was I, there, but I, wasn't he just a producer at that point, and not head of the studio? Because he had, after Godfather, he, he, no, that was the same year. I'm trying to remember. He produced Chinatown, right? Not just oversaw it as a studio head. He was actually a credited producer for Chinatown, correct? So according to, I've been looking up like what the deal is with Evans. He apparently left his position as head of production after Chinatown. But you know the 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 idea of Coppola's experience on each of the four films. Being so different, I think, is interesting because, like I like I was just saying, Godfather 2 seems to be the one. I'm sure he had, I mean, it was a huge, huge production. I'm sure he had his problems here and there. But the duress of all the other three films That's the way, the way, certainly, that he tells it, that he hated the first Godfather, that um, the conversation was just hard because they didn't have any money and they were, I think he had some, Hackman was a little difficult and then they yeah. had issues with having to, Changed the ending because the people cops. were showing up and the cops were showing up, right? And they had to... I think the story is that, that he wanted a foggy scene. And it was going to be, you know, once he's figured out what really happened with Cindy Williams and, and um, Forrest, he confronts her and spills his guts about his where he comes from and why he is the way he is. And that's kind of what you get in the dream sequence earlier. Right. And he wanted it to be foggy. And I guess the fog machine uh, rankled the neighborhood... And the neighbors started calling the cops, and the cops showed up, and Hackman was getting angry and frustrated, and Coppola just pulled the plug on the whole movie right then. That was the last, I think that was the last thing they were shooting. At least that's what I got out of the what he says on the commentary. And they, he just went and redid, you know, they went back and I think they must have reshot. You know, they could have easily recut that whole ending to fit, and then he placed that foggy business into a kind of a, it always reminds me a little vertigo, uh, San Francisco plus fog, weird coloration of the scene. It reminds Always me reminds that, me of Vertigo a little bit. And that bit. Bonnie and Clyde funeral scene, too. Oh, yeah, that, oh, that, that weird, well. with all those disembodied voices, <laughs> like the the mom. And uh, the super grainy, super grainy film. And <laughs> so weird. It just slow reminded motion me of rolling that. down the hills. It's really, yeah. yeah, really weird. But, um, yeah, so so that was fraught with, with, you know, challenges, but apparently the way he, and Apocalypse that was a nightmare, but apparently he says that Godfather 2 was the yeah. easiest, relative easiest of all of them, even though he said it took a long time to shoot and they waited for the sun a lot and there was a lot of things that they couldn't control, but that everybody was, everybody got along fairly well and everybody was kind of at the top of their game and, and he kind of knew what he was doing because he'd been there before with Godfather, but he was creating these echoes of style, which is the other thing that's so interesting about when you're looking at these Four films in a row, and with the whole tourist point of view of you know, is there a distinctive style from movie to movie? Um, and certainly, because Godfather and Godfather Two are sequels, they're going to be shot with the same kind of style. Mm-hmm. And he's got a lot more of an Antonioni style going on with um, the conversation, and with Apocalypse Now, he's part of it is you know, handheld. You are there in the middle of the in the middle of the war on the boat, so that's a very different kind of style than he uses in the other pictures so so stylistically they're all very different from each other they are for sure i mean just to go through them in order the godfather for coppola was a job 
He didn't really want to do it. He needed the money. It was a big job he could take to make money to keep his film company afloat. He took it, and it hit bigger than they could have ever imagined, which allowed him to make The Conversation, which was a movie he wanted to make before. This is a world of hidden mics and two-way mirrors, a world where nothing is private. You think we can do this? Later in the week. Harry Cole is an expert. The best there is. Let me tell you something about Harry Cole. The best bar none. I'll drink to that. Best what? The best bugger on the West Coast. What about me? He can bug anybody, anytime, anywhere. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. Caused a hell of a scandal, too. Look, did you see him? The man with the hearing aid, like Charles. He's been following us all They're not people to him, just voices. Three people were murdered, that's all. He doesn't know them, and they don't know him. Uh, had nothing to do with me. I mean, I just turned in the tapes. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I've been involved in some work that I think, I think will be used to hurt these two young people. Responsible. I, I'm not responsible. I'm... You're not supposed to feel anything about it. You're just supposed to do it. Be careful, Harry. You're just supposed to listen. Not look. Not feel. Not care. There is nothing private about the conversation. Listen. To me, the conversation's almost like Coppola going back in time for just a minute and making a movie he would have made in the 60s and being right. able to do it because he's got the money to, because of the success of The Godfather. He had enough money to get it get it made. Don't you guess that Duval would have probably been a hairy call had he made that in like 1969 after the rain people or whatever? Maybe, um, yeah. I feel like it's kind of his, yeah, yeah, yeah. would have been his guy. But um, And then you get The Godfather 2, which is the studio wanted so badly and he got everything he wanted. history of two generations of crime. The drama of absolute power and the men who violate it. The Godfather, part two. What is your name? Don Vito Corleone and his son, Michael, both had seen the ones they loved most cut down before their eyes. Both had killed as an act of vengeance. Both commanded the most powerful and merciless crime organization in the world. Is it true that in the year 1950, you devised the murder of the heads of the so-called five families in New York? It's a complete falsehood. They would take any measures. I mean, you've won. Do you want to wipe everybody out? I don't feel I have to wipe everybody out, Tom. It's just my enemies. Make any arrangement. Michael, we're bigger than U.S. Steel. Order any death to protect the empire they controlled. The Godfather. 
and his heir. Both were men of ice, and both were targets. Keep them alive. We'll try. Rocco! Alive! It is the motion picture masterpiece of the year. And then Apocalypse Now comes along and it's like almost kills him. And it's funny because he kind of was going back in that too because yeah. Apocalypse Now had been written well before the Godfather movies. Right. And it's just not – but at the same time, it's it's also not exactly what they were going for when they initially were wanted to make it. It became Coppola's thing. You know, He formed it into what he wanted to be as opposed to what – it certainly is not what Lucas would have made had Lucas and Melius made it the way it was intended to be. This is the end, beautiful friend. I've been a soldier since I was 19, and I still haven't learned how to wait for it. I wanted a mission for my sins, they gave me one. Nobody had ever gone on a mission like it before. And when it was over, I'd never want another one. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. When you find the colonel, infiltrate his team by whatever means available and terminate the colonel's command. Terminate. Terminate with extreme prejudice. Air cab, son. We're coming low out of the rising sun. And about a mile out, we'll put on the music. It scares the hell out of the slopes. My boys love it. It has the distinct Coppola touch to it. Of course, it's hard to imagine what Lucas, George Lucas's Apocalypse Now would have been right. like. It's really hard to imagine. Obviously, with, Actually, it would be like more American Graffiti was probably what George true. Lucas's Apocalypse yeah. Now would probably be like. Yeah. I mean, would you have had Deschanel shooting it? Would you? Because uh, they did do a distinct style for the Vietnam sequences, right? In that? Yeah. Uh, that I can't were... even speak to more American graffiti because I haven't seen it in so long. And I think it's getting a reconsideration critically from a lot of people. So I'm really interested in Maybe. seeking it out because they did take a different photographic style for each section of it, apparently. I'm trying to think if we could even possibly talk about George Lucas, the producer in a quadfecta, as opposed to the director. That's another thing we point out to the listener. It is possible we won't always be talking about a director. We might be talking about producers. We might be talking about um, other people who could be considered auteurs over, you know, over a project. Like George Lucas would be over most of his projects, I guess. I think you could do four extraordinary cinematographic works. You could look Maybe, at yeah. directors of photography, and there might be a, a streak in a DP's career where they just knocked it out of the park four times in a row. Oh, on, on four movies that were all great movies. As I, I yeah. mean, we still have to come back to... Are these four movies in a row great movies? You, you can't... It can't just be they did a good job shooting the movie, but right. it was kind of the whole movie. 
Well, it looks good. That's not that's not what we're going for here, for sure. But yeah, I've definitely had a little little mini arguments having this discussion. Sometimes people are just aghast that I will say, I just don't think that movie qualifies. And they'll be like, what? Well, do you like it? But does it really stand up? I mean, that's the other thing. This is the thing that I think people misunderstand about this the most. I believe that it's pretty inarguable that all four of the Coppola movies are on the same level. Like, I think across the board, other than minor variations here and there in you know, little things that went wrong with the productions or whatever. I think in the end, they're all equally successful in what they're doing. And they're all successful on a very, very high level relative to every other movie ever made. That's the ticket. Like it can't be two really, really great movies, one good movie and another really, really great movie. I mean, if there's the dip at all, that's not the quad fact. So the one we'll be arguing about will be that one and the four that's yeah. the one where we go, man, maybe is can, it really as good as the others? And can, you know, a lot of times it'll be, can the ar- the guests argue that movie up to that level? Can we find where the ground might, the equal ground might be found? Can and we find And we're not, not talking about perfect movies even because we were talking about that earlier. Yeah. You know, perfection is such a weird thing. Um Critics certainly had a field day with the last act of Apocalypse Now. There were a lot Mm -hmm. of critics that really thought that the movie didn't do in the third act what the film had managed to do leading up to that. That once Brando shows up, the movie is a failure. I mean, there's some some critics really went that far. Sure. That is you can argue. We can argue that, you know, we can argue whether whether that well, part of the film is weaker than another part of the film. Well, we um, are. We're talking about Coppola. Let's talk about that. Do you think that the third act of Apocalypse Now, like, doesn't uh, bring us the promise of the rest of the movie? I think the third act of Apocalypse Now is on a different frequency from the rest of the movie. But that doesn't bother me at all. I actually like the fact that you get this this different tonality in the third act and i think that you know once you get to the big finish and once you get to the cow getting chopped up and marlon brando well actually marlon brando's double (laughs) getting attacked (laughs) i think it has a great finish i love that image of of martin sheen standing there with the giant big book under his arm looking down on those people and the people looking up at him and essentially saying you could be the next kurtz Mm -hmm. it's such a powerful final human moment that I think it's spectacular. And I also personally like seeing all of the um, stuff get blown up at the end. I like that version where, where you actually get to see the the airstrike and the set gets exploded. But not every version has that at the end. So for me, I think it's great. I love it. I, I, I'm completely satisfied by it because I don't need to see another helicopter attack. And I don't want to see the firefight that John Milius wrote where they all dropped acid and and had a big machine gun battle. You know, that would have been the wrong ending for Apocalypse Now because it's about, you know, entropy and it's about the world winding down. And uh, so, you know, you get no argument from me that it's a bad, I think it's a great movie. Within the text or the subtext of the film, I'll, I'll say that it's about this journey into hell, right? It should be hellish, right. which hell is not something I don't think you sit down with a typewriter and write it. I just I think this is one of those instances where he had to come up with this visual gumbo of sorts. If you can, I mean, yeah. I'm trying to think of something else, yeah, yeah, some yeah. other metaphor. Gumbo is good. That I'll, I'll he that. couldn't probably really preconceive like a lot. of So much of this movie was not preconceived. The very beginning of the movie, 
and it was entirely accidental. The opening, you know, okay, they shot a scene with Sheen laying on a bed, staring at the ceiling. They shot a reverse shot of of his point of view, looking at a ceiling fan. They had that, but the intro with the helicopters going by where you get those palm trees mm-hmm. in the foreground and then you get the napalm explosion. That was all, what did they call it? Lit, uh, filler or fill? Well, Is that what they was, called it? They were just sh- it was cut B, it was, clips. It was B camera stuff from the from yeah. the big scene at the end. It was, a, it was a camera that was on the tree line when they did the napalm right. at the right of the Valkyries. But, but you call it, do you call it B, uh, do you call it B camera foot? Or, I mean, it's like clip stuff from that. Like that was stuff was never, the editors didn't even ask if they would want something like that. And it just so happened that Coppola... Oh, you uh, mean they pulled it out of the trim bin? He pulled it out of the trim bin. He pulled it out of a bucket. I've heard him tell this story like three or four times. It's all sitting in a bucket. All he was doing in the editing room that day was seeing off his editor, who had to go back home. He couldn't stay in the Philippines anymore. And he goes, and says, oh, I want to go see him you know, before he takes off. And he's in there and just hanging out with him. And says, what's in here? And starts putting it up to the bulb. Like he was not even... Well, he ended up putting it in the moviola to really look at it. But he was looking at it and goes, this is... What is this? Puts in the moviola. That entire like first few seconds of the movie is all that, and that's a complete accident. And yet it's and then he goes. Yeah, the camera was actually it, it was they rolled the camera earlier. Yeah. Before the well, well before the napalm run to make sure that the camera was running up to speed and everything. Right. Yeah. It's and slow then, motion too. It's a slow motion camera. And then it's kind of a corny story, but if it weren't true, he got an end piece that said the end on it. <laughs> Like it had was labeled, here's the end of that clip. And he goes, huh, wouldn't it be funny if I put the song The End at the beginning of the movie? That's it. And I think the ending, obviously the third act of Apocalypse Now, also had to be cut together on the fly to a certain extent because they didn't, he didn't know Brando was going to show up so overweight. He didn't realize he was going to have to get this crazy improvised performance in a lot of ways. And they had, they had to light him so that it wasn't, did you hear that story that nuts. there was like some five and a half hour cut or something then, and he had Godard look at it? No, and I've I just, never heard that. Yeah, and, and I I heard the story. I think it's so funny. It's like, of all the people that you want you to help you out with your editing, you go to Godard. I don't know. That seems a little yeah, odd. Yeah, it seems like he'd be like, oh, I don't know. Could use another 30 minutes. It were, Apocalypse Now, the way it's put together, wouldn't work if it were not about the insanity of Vietnam, like if it were another movie and he tried to cut it together this way, it would be a terrible movie. Probably the fact that it is about basically losing your mind, confusion, confusion, hallucinatory situation. And and like the journey to hell. Nothing is so terrible as a pretentious movie. I mean, a movie that aspires for something really terrific and doesn't pull it off is shit. It's scum. And everyone will walk on it as such. And that's why poor filmmakers in a way, that's their greatest horror to be pretentious so here you are on one hand is trying to aspire to really do something on the other hand you're not allowed to be pretentious and finally you say fuck it i don't care if i'm pretentious or not pretentious or if i've done it or i haven't done it. all i know is that i am going to see this movie and that for me it has to have some answers and by answers i don't mean just a punchline answers on about 47 different levels i wouldn't call the godfather a happy accident by any means there was a lot that of work that had to go into making that and it wasn't I don't think he was as sure-footed when he made it, and I think he did get help coming up with the finished product. I'm, I don't believe Robert Evans's tale of basically making the movie for him. I, I do believe he probably had some influence. I don't think he's totally lying. Um, in the conversation, you know, there you can see the vision there, and obviously The Godfather too. But Apocalypse Now is the one that feels like a big 
accident in a way. Like it was just, everything got so out of control. It could have been the worst movie ever made, but it all just came together. And and that's what all four of those movies are so different in their way. Yet. I think they all hit that same level of success. And then Apocalypse Now maybe broke Francis Ford Coppola, right? <laughs> when did he make his next great film? He, I don't think he ever made a film on the level of those four. Yeah. I really like Rumblefish and I really like Tucker. I think Tucker's a really entertaining movie. Yeah, and, I hear and the Blu-ray is really gorgeous. I, the new the new Tucker Blu-ray. I've never even seen the Blu-ray, but um, to me that's a that's a great film. It, it, probably underappreciated. I like one from the heart, even though I know a lot of people hate that movie. And he, he obviously that's the movie that did him in, did yeah. the studio in. Yeah. Um, but I, I I think there's a lot to like in one from the heart. He's always interesting. Even I mean. God, I liked. It. I enjoyed in high school. I really thought Peggy Sue Got Married was a great. I like film. Peggy Sue Got Married. Yeah, it's. I like it too. It's. It's funny to see him work on that frequency because I guarantee you could show that movie to somebody who somehow never heard of it but knew Francis Ford Coppola. I don't think they would think that's a Francis Ford Coppola movie. Oh, there's that that moment. Um, I mean, it hits those. It's one. It's a time travel movie, which is very strange. I kind of don't. I know it is, but I don't think about it in the same way as I think about other time travel movies. But there's that moment where she answers the phone and it's her grandma. That always gets me. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I don't remember. She's a, well, she's a middle-aged woman who goes back to her high school days, Oh right. answers yeah. the phone, and yeah. her grandma's voice comes through it. I mean, that's like schmaltzy and all, but it really worked. He was able to work on that, you know, able to accomplish little uh, feelings like that. It I think was well just, after Back to the Future, right? Uh, two, three years? Yeah. I mean, Nick, Nicolas Cage was still Valley Girl-ish, you know, era. Pre Wild at Heart, post but Back Valley to the Girl. Future had kind of yeah. um, written a new chapter when it comes to time travel movies because I seem to remember when it came out, there was a softness about the time travel conceit yeah. that uh, audiences were kind of taking issue with it, and that's probably only because Back to the Future had sort of seared into the. Yeah, this, collective conscious brain of what a time travel movie has to do. Well, it set rules for yeah. time travel that people still think. I mean, I, I guarantee you any person off the street, if you were like, hey, if I traveled back in time, they'd be like, well, don't find yourself. Uh, that'll ruin the space time. All these made up things about time travel that people think are real. I mean, there's no real science about time travel, I guess, but... Um, they accept it as absolute fact because Back to the Future taught us what time travel was when really it was Bill and Ted's that taught us what time travel was. Sitting on the edge of forever taught us what time travel really. That's true. Where where you actively go and change the past. (laughs) That's how you do it. That's how you do it, it. yeah. Um, All roads lead back to Star Trek, of course. Of course. Um, You know, we were talking about like these movies are not perfect movies, and this is where I don't want to be pedantic so I'm going to be pedantic for just a second mm-hmm. and say that, you know, The Godfather is not a perfect movie because there's all sorts of things like lips moving and not saying what they're saying because they've dubbed something in to try to help clear up the plot or um, mm-hmm. extra uh, uh, doubles doubles walking around. Oh, the so, Duvall walking. <laughs> yeah, right. The so-called right. Robert Duvall walking through the, the Leo garden. Walt, Leo Walton's house. Terrible. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, of course, the scene where Sonny goes and and beats up uh, uh, Polly, Carlo, Paul, or Carlo, right? Goes to beat up Carlo, and there's that one punch that just like it's so far away from his face, right. he totally misses the the fake punch. But the guy snaps his head to try to sell it, but mm-hmm. it's like you know, there's like a foot 
between the guy's face sure. and the fist. Now, does that make the movie bad? Of course not. But it's not a perfect movie. <laughs> well, no, it's not a perfect. But it's a movie great movie. Those. See, you can be you can a movie can be great and not be oh, perfect. Oh yeah, we're gonna have That's all kinds. We're talking about here. We're gonna have all kinds of movies that have things like that in them. I mean, the thing is, was the movie shitty enough for you to notice those things the first time you watched it? No, I right. mean, if it, a truly great film, you won't notice those things until the twentieth time you watch. I didn't. I always assumed it was Duvall. I mean, it should be really obvious. I always assumed it was him walking through that garden until I heard the commentary. I literally had to have Coppola tell me that wasn't him. Like, Wait a minute. I guess it was 40 years later or whatever when he recorded the commentary. That's I wouldn't have told I people. Love I love still... all of his commentaries because he's just as brutally honest as yeah. uh, as any director can be that I know of that manages to to not have it cut out because of the lawyers. Like there's a, a story about this commentary track that Michael Mann did for the insider. And the studio demanded that that thing be actually destroyed yeah. because they were so afraid of the lawsuits that were going to come their way from big tobacco because of all the stuff that he gave up sure. in this commentary. <laughs> so there's always a lawyer sitting there for a lot of these companies. But with Coppola, you always just get the sense that there's nobody there. He's, he's just going to, going to tell you exactly what he wants. And he's very frank about yeah, well, we did this, and that wasn't over there, and we tricked you this way, and we made this. You know, I mean, I love it. I love all that stuff. Was it Young Ter- Terrence Young? Is that the right name? Oh, and then t- oh yeah, well, the, the, the Terrence old, Young James Bond the old commentaries. Bond commentaries where he was revealing all kinds. Yeah, of Yeah, talking stuff about Lottie about Lenya screwing all these men, and then they made him cut that stuff out. Connery so. getting out of the car without any pants on at all, <laughs> stuff like that. And that that all that all, all became that. the band commentary for yep. for the first three Bond films, right? Uh, which are out there on the interwebs somewhere. Yeah, sure. You can you can find them. I think it'll be really interesting if some guest comes in with what one or both of us find to be four absolutely not great movies in a row. Four not. Do you think like we book this guest I, I, in the first I, well, place? I think so. I think that so, at, at some point I'm going to say yes. I, I already have seen people list say, what about so and so? And they tell you these four movies. You're like, what? yeah, but but I, you know, I've gotten that a lot over the years. This thing started like 12 years ago. Like I've I've been doing this for a long and time. Finally you're going to make the big bucks. Uh, finally, off I'm going to I'm going to I knew it was my cash cow all along. Okay. Usually if you vet them just a little bit, they will realize, "Oh yeah, I guess you're right about that one." Usually the presentation of four mediocre movies is a gut reaction. Uh-huh. Like, "Oh, well, I like this guy." So yeah. he must have had four movies. I like oh, these four John no. Irvin movies. Yeah. <laughs> well, John McTiernan, I mean, going to I'm sorry if you come to me with John McTiernan, I'm going to say you cannot bring Medicine Man into this podcast studio. I'm sorry. <laughs> the three movies he made before Medicine Man? Absolutely. Nomads? I've never seen Nomads, yeah, but it can't be on the level of Die Hard. No, it's not. Yeah, so, so You don't get Nomads. And then some, one might argue Predator versus Humphrey October, which is you know is Predator on the level? I think it is, but that's a very so personal thing. So Predator, Die Hard, Humphrey October, that's Medicine it. Man. And then Medicine You're not Man. getting John Ouch. Sorry, yeah. everyone. John McTiernan's not going to get talked about here because I don't think Medicine Man is worth the discussion. And I don't think the fact that he made that choice is like something. Occasionally, we'll, there'll be one that we know will fail. As a matter of fact, I know that we're going to have one very soon that we know isn't going to get the quadfecta. We'll just say that now. But it's so worthy of discussion. We're going to have to talk about We're going to have to have one episode where we know we're not going to get it just to get it out of the way. Right. And kind of demonstrate right. what we're talking about. And also, this filmmaker is going to get brought up so much that we're going to have to get it out of the way. You know, what about those journeyman directors who make four unbelievably solid movies in a row that on their own terms might even be great, but that haven't maybe 
and remembered forever or I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, there's some, yeah, of the, yeah. some of those are going to be fun. And then yeah. I haven't even started to go through some of those journeyman directors from the 1980s, like Fred Skepsi or Roger Donaldson, who seemed to work a lot one mm-hmm. movie after another with movie stars. But weren't writers in in most of the cases. I mean, so I don't know. There's some other people that'll be interesting to see what we can find. Yeah, and I don't want to sound like I'm closed-minded. The John McTiernan thing has just been talked about already, and, and it's a good example. No, of, it's a great example. Come on, three three unbelievable movies, bang, 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 and, and then, then oops. medicine. You know what? I would let you in for that conversation if it was Die Hard three instead of. Not that I think that he gets the quadfecta because of Die Hard three. If that's the movie he makes instead of Medicine Man. I would talk about it, though. I think it would be worthy of... Because, for one thing, we'd be comparing one sequel to its original movie. Right. There's all kinds of... And I would love nothing more than to talk about how great The Hunt for October is. I, I always am on that Yeah, pedestal. that's one you can always watch or you can always talk <laughs> oh, about. I can watch that. I watch that movie at least once a year. It's just... Well, that's a And then story, McTiernan but. did that remake of The Thomas Crown Affair, right? Sure. So that was that and was Rollerball. Kind of, he, he was in that Norman Jewison uh, remake phase that was oh, really that's bizarre. Right. Those are both Norman Jewison <laughs> Yes, it's movies. very strange. Well, it's you, good thing he didn't do Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> or did Jewison do hair? <laughs> Why did he make two Norman Jewison remakes? I have no idea. <laughs> no, Norman Jewison didn't do hair. Norman Jewison no, did, right. did Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Milos Forman did hair. Forman did hair, right? Yeah. Which well, is also like doesn't that isn't that who springs to mind when you oh. think let's make a movie. Out of hair, yeah. who should we get to direct it? Milos. Well, Milos Forman, of course. Of course, Milos. Yeah. Did you see? I, did, did you I see, didn't even think about him. Speaking being... <laughs> of which, have you have you rewatched um, uh, uh, Ragtime? I haven't Since gotten. Oh no, up I need on to. Amazon? I need to. Yeah, that's right. We talked about that, and I haven't uh, done it yet. Pretty good, you know. It's like I well, don't remember it very well from when it first came out. I remembered parts of it, but as I sat back and watched it, maybe uh, it's not nostalgia. It's just a sense of. They just kind of don't make movies like that anymore. And it was mm-hmm. sort of a real pleasure to see that kind of movie with that kind of cast, with that kind of production value and narrative and music. And it just, I don't know. I really thought it was really a great movie to revisit. Uh, off the top of your head, where does that fall in Foreman's for you got Cuckoo's Nest? Let's say that's the start of one. What's after Cuckoo's Nest immediately? Is it Ragtime? I don't know. I can't remember. Where's Amadeus? That's, no, that's Ragtime was at... that's, that's years oh, later. Amadeus was after Ragtime. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, interesting. I, I don't want to look it up right now on air, but yeah. Foreman might be an interesting conversation to have if Ragtime... I can't remember there being any like duds in there, but maybe there is. Maybe that's the thing. I mean, he made some duds in his career, but I'm just saying in that span. But after Cuckoo's Nest to Amadeus... Right. Is, Anyway, there's a bunch of those British directors too that are going to be fun to look at. Oh yeah, you know, Stephen Frears and yeah, I think Frears. Guys. I think we've talked about Frears, but Jordan. Yeah, all these would be really interesting. But um, I was trying to say John that Borman. I just don't. We're not going to do Borman. We Zardoz can't talk about Zardoz. Zardoz and Exorcist too. They just just you no. know, they're just gumming up the works as much as you might like. I'd never turn down the opportunity to watch Zardoz. I think Zardoz is an amazing mess of a movie, and I love to watch it. And actually, kind of the same goes for Exorcist 2. I like to watch that, although it's harder to watch. I barely remember Exorcist 2, and I don't think I ever need to see Zardoz again. I just don't <laughs> quite. Maybe maybe I needed to see it on HBO when I was a kid or something to have the, any nostalgia for it to make it appealing oh, to me. But I mean, I, there's I some know. ideas about it. it that are kind of fun. But even when you listen to the commentary on it, even he doesn't like the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but he hates it. I just it's like really hard to, to like it. Sean Connery is all the way through it, man. That guy is so 
fucking committed. It's crazy. It's amazing. He is just delivering 110% every step of the way. And it's kind of like, all right, man, he believes this. It's really because it's, it's not good. much later where you might not see. The, well, he wouldn't be in a movie like. Well, well I'd, ra- highly. <laughs> I'd rather watch him. I'd rather watch him in Zardoz than Diamonds Are Forever because I know which right. one of those two movies he actually seems to care about. So and he wouldn't make Highlander. He did have that weird Highlander. Occasionally, he'll go make a crazy sci-fi movie. Yeah, and, yeah. and then and be a Sir Spaniard Sir in Gowing, a movie about Scotsman. Sir Gowing and the Green Knight, where he played the Green Knight. They paid him. That was back in his oh, day. Yeah, when yeah. if you'll pay me a million dollars, I'll come and do your movie. Yeah, we should talk about. I kind of want to make sure things are one. 100% clear about what the show is because one thing I've noticed is a lot of times people will still kind of misunderstand okay so I explain just wanna, it to us John because so brass tax time I okay. guess is what this is we're going to air one episode a month to start but who knows maybe in the future we'll find it um, we might want to do one every two weeks or something but no promises so once every month I think tentatively on the third Tuesday of the month is when we're going to put it out so that's when you can expect it in your podcast feed you know, we will have the guest on. We'll probably chat with them for a second. We'll get right into the filmmaker, discuss the films in chronological order, and at the end, come to a conclusion. Um, we are going to disqualify short films, documentaries, and TV films. Um, so these are strictly theatrically and commercials, re- and, commercials and so forth. The right. things that basically I'm talking about what shows up in the IMDb. Oh, okay. Which is what people are going to go to <laughs> every time when they're trying to figure out the chronology of things. So I just want to make sure people realize we're talking about theatrically released um, fictional narrative films. So, um, and sometimes it's going to make it interesting, like with The Last Waltz, for instance, for Scorsese or somebody. It's going to be like, well, you're saying, sorry, we're you're not talking the about The Last Waltz, Waltz. Doesn't count? No, it doesn't count. We're not. Why? We have. Well, That's if, a theatrical feature film. Why is that any different than? Well, then, than, Mitch, than, we have to not do the show because I guarantee you, if we if we don't have these rules in place, it's going to throw everything off. Well, I don't think that a theatrically released oh, great. feature film by Martin Scorsese, if that happens to be in the four, well, it's, it doesn't. I will use it as an example because it no, still I, has okay. it still has New York, New York. Right in the middle. What of What if it. Michael Wadley had done four really great movies and one of them was Woodstock? Would you, that not count? I, I'm telling you, if you let one person's documentary in, <laughs> you're going to find it really hard to ever find one of these because people make these little documentaries or TV movies. I mean, are we going to disqualify movies. TV movies? Why? Well, TV. They're also films, aren't they? Aren't they are also, I mean, sometimes the TV movies are really great, like Duel. Right. We can't. I mean, we have Although to have Duel some kind of- Duel had a theatrical release in Europe. Yeah, okay. But we can't because I'm telling you, I've been through this so many times looking on IMDb. Where it's like, oh, well, it's not very interesting to talk about anymore because this guy has three other little weird things in between these well, two movies. Let me let me say this: that if it's a great big theatrically released concert movie like The Last Waltz, which is more than a concert movie because it's sure, I'll, I might I might uh, ad- admit it. So so we're just gonna have to cross that bridge this, when we get. This to might it. end up being also a listener vote. Okay. So if we say, do you listeners think that this should count? <laughs> and they say yes. I mean, to me, you know. You could just hear this okay, tone so, in John's voice like he's fearing anarchy. He's fearing the no, mob. No, I'm not. I, I honestly think that there's more. I mean, I'm speaking from experience. Right. Of, there's more problems to be had no, when I know, you start to get I, documentaries I in there. Okay. Than, um, I mean, because if you take Scorsese, we might end up talking about Scorsese at some point. It probably won't be the four that you think it would be. Right. Because of New York, New York. 
Um, sorry, no offense to anyone out there who loves New York, New York for some reason, but it's hot garbage of a movie to me. I think it's almost unwatchable. I think we just had this conversation. It just didn't not, did not happen the way he wanted it to happen. It doesn't work. So it breaks up right in the middle yeah. of. But if yeah. you took that out, and then would you really want the quadfecta to be Taxi Driver? Um, it doesn't matter if, if you're saying you don't would, want the last would, waltz would to the, be in the I way of the, Raging Bull, right? Like it. I wouldn't want it to. I mean, I guess it would be an interesting conversation. Yeah, the last waltz is kind of a great. Movie. No, it really is. I'm not. Yeah, so I'm certainly I don't not know. Saying. I think it transcends whatever. See, this is the kind of. Dialogue you're going to get, folks. That's right. Sometimes we're going to argue and That's disagree. Right. It's going to be exciting. I can I can smell it. <laughs> we'll decide whether documentaries count or not, I guess, later. It, uh, again, it might be up to a vote plus our decision. And then after the show, when certain people are enraged at us for saying that one movie didn't qualify or if people agree with us, we'll have Twitter. We'll have a Facebook page, um, maybe other social media sources that I, I'm not even aware of right now where you can interact with us and we'll converse with you. And I'm already having some interaction with people because people will immediately, as soon as they hear this idea, gears turn. It's the weirdest thing. Even people that don't even care that much about movies will start trying to think of, well, what about Quentin Tarantino or whatever? We welcome all the input that you've got. We want to hear the conversation. We want it to be a big listener fueled conversation. Not, we're not the Kings of the mountain here. The deciders, Deciding whether or not this qualifies in the end, I'm the decider. in no, the end, the we'll have a show vote and then we'll have the listener vote. And that way we can see what the people think. Maybe the people love medicine man and we don't even realize it. Maybe John McTiernan does get the quad fact. I don't think so. <laughs>